Welcome to the Kincast from Kinherit. We examine everyday challenges from running a business, self-development, and getting on the property ladder to dealing with loss, having a family, and preparing for our end of life. Practical and insightful, the Kincast series will take you through life's challenges from cradle to grave. It addresses the current climate while also looking to the future to see how we can survive and thrive. Hello and welcome. This is the Kincast. I'm Ben Mason, the CEO of Kinherit where we do wills, trusts, and powers of attorney. We are joined today by Michael Trigg. Michael has, well, you'll hear in a minute, he has a voice like silk, like melted chocolate, if anything, <laughs> is, uh, can be compared to his voice. So Michael is a um, presentation coach, teaches people how to speak in public. Uh, I'm doing him a complete disservice by just putting it as that, but in layman's terms, that what he, that's what he does. So Michael, welcome. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and then, then I'll fire in some questions. Hi, Ben. Well, thank you very much for your intro. And I hope that the chocolate is liquid and flowing as I speak. Um, yeah, what, what would you like to know about me? Where would you like me to start? Well, you, you, where you've ended up is, is somewhere different to very, very different to where you started. So you started off in banking in the 70s. So let's, let's go a little bit about you and your journey and what you've learned along the way. And then we'll go into some help for people who might be looking to speak in public, might be looking to do presentations and pitches. So in the 70s, you started off as a banker and realised that wasn't for you? Well, let's go back a bit further than that, which I think is a, a more important influence. Uh, I started off as a soldier. Uh, I was in the army for five years and I ran one of the training wings in my regiment, uh, as young officers often do. And But I was on a short service commission, so I didn't... I wasn't ever intending to stay as a soldier, make it a career, but I thought it was a good start to life. And actually the reason I did it was that I screwed up my A-levels in spectacular fashion, having fell in love with a local girl and got jilted just before A-level time. So that my mental state was all over the place and I made a spectacular hash of all my A-levels. So I couldn't go to university unless I did another year. And the army were taking full page ads in all the papers and there were about so eight or 10 signatures on a page. And you looked underneath the signature and it said chairman of ICI, chairman of BP, chairman of Marks and Spencers. And at the bottom, the strap line just said, we think three years in the army is as good as a university degree. And a little pip at the end of the line. And I thought, well, okay. So that's why I joined the army and did that for five years, um, had a great time. And then I, as you mentioned, I went into the city. I swore I wouldn't go into the city because I saw it then and still is to a certain degree, a graveyard for ex-army officers. But I worked uh, in a small merchant bank. And to be honest with you, I loathed it. I, it really wasn't my metier at all. So learning to mismanage other people's money. And I just didn't like it at all. And I thought, well, I'd better do something because, and I don't know anything apart from a little bit about being a soldier. So I took vocational guidance um, and they came up with a whole load of things. And one of the things they recommended was um, advertising, marketing, public relations, sales. And so I went around a lot of agencies uh, and they said, well, that's the cut of your jib, but go and get some sales experience. So I thought, okay, there's a theme here. And I ended up joining an American company called Procter & Gamble, or P&G as it's generally known today, uh, in, in sales. 
And I started up as a salesman, then a trainer of salespeople, uh, and then a trainee area manager. I then became an area manager and finished up in Newcastle, in head office as it was then, in a tiny department which writes promotions, launches brands, etc. And I suppose the army and P&G were the sort of biggest formative influences in my adult life. And they had remarkable similarities in many ways. Um, both of them only recruited from the bottom and then you went up. Um, they had very similar values around ethics and integrity and honesty. And, and the amount of time you were expected and almost demanded that you spent with your people. And in Procter & Gamble, um, we were, as young managers, and I suspect as older ones as well, we were promoted or measured, shall I say, 50-50 on two things. 50% was your ability to produce the business, which is fair enough. It's a commercial organization, it's in sales. The other 50% was your ability to produce the people. And we were strongly encouraged um, to spend a hell of a lot of time. I suppose about 80% of my time I spent with my salespeople in the field. And I strongly encouraged to get them promoted as much as possible if they had the right stuff. And I seem to be quite good at both, which is what I got, why I got promoted to go up to head office. And how, how, so, were they, how, how were you selling? What were you selling into stores? Were you selling into, um, how, what, was the set, what was the sale you guys were doing at that point? Uh, we were selling into stores and wholesalers, yeah. but particularly uh, stores. And, but I, as a young area manager, I had accounts as well to look after. And I had, as it happened, the largest account for somebody of my rank in the company. Um, and that did quite well. Another reason for me getting promoted too. But can I make one point here then, which I think is sort of relevant to this. I suppose this, this developing others, should we say, started to get into my DNA very strongly yeah, that, then. That, that's what it feels like. It feels like you, 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 were, you, you were a little bit involved with training people in your regiment. You're involved with training and developing people here. The yep. ability to speak and present is very key in both roles. It feels like where, what, what's building here is where we've got to. It's, 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 it's great to see that. Thank you. Yes. Um, but what was it, no, and should I say, what was extraordinary for me is that it seemed utterly logical that you spend so much time with your people, motivating them, inspiring them to a certain degree, but, but training them and making them feel valued. But I've been lucky enough in, since then, uh, in my current manifestation, should we say, as a trainer and coach, to have worked with over 75 organizations, I suppose. Uh, anybody from, almost anyone from the chief executive of B&Q to the eldest children of the Aga Khan. Uh, and I love that sense of variety. But what I've noticed in all those 75 uh, organizations, and most of them are household names, is that not one of them comes close to P&G in the way that it managed and developed its people. Not one. Yeah. And the idea of being measured on developing your people it just seemed logical to me. But um, very few people, very few other organizations do so. 
so when you've got this realization now yeah how did you know at Procter and Gamble it was so good that's do you just said people ah, great question I hadn't a clue that it was that good I knew it had a good reputation but I didn't know how good it was until so I left so it's later in life you realize that everyone else is getting it wrong compared to what Procter and Gamble did absolutely I didn't know at the time and you may well ask you know uh, well then why the hell did you leave them and very simple I'd, I'd had enough by that stage I'd had the grocery trade and soap powder up to my eyeballs and uh, I just didn't want to do it anymore and I mean it's a phenomenal company it really was but I it just it wasn't for me forevermore so that's why I and I didn't know what I wanted to do to be honest with you I just knew it wasn't that there's, uh, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that people sometimes are very quick to say oh well why have you jumped why have you moved well sometimes people jump and move because that's how they feel and that's what they want to do, and they've had enough of doing X or Y? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, the figures may have changed, but I mean, the forward of my book, which I wrote a few years ago, uh, I got some figures from the American Department of Labor, and they said people born then, so going back about five or six years, will expect to have 14 different careers. Yeah. 14. And that was, you know, five or six years ago. So yeah, people will will be moving for all sorts of reasons. So you you leave Procter and Gamble and you go to Mast. Was it Mast International? Yes, it was. Yeah. Which is your kind of? It looks like your first role where you are purely looking now at the development, the coaching, and the and the training. Abs absolutely, it stood for management and skills training, and it was. Um, a happy bunch of rogues, should we say. Uh, but the, it was great fun. Uh, there were some really lovely people from all sorts of um, commercial uh, and also social backgrounds. And we, we were bloody good uh, in those days. This was back when I was in the 80s. And I was loving it. And I was probably one of the best, uh, highest producing consultants in the company. And the reason I started my own was not through any feeling, I'll be honest with you, it was an away from rather than a towards. I had no great desire or ambition to see my, late, my name in lights, it's my show, but nothing stays the same. And Mast began to change and it got very political and, and, and see, and I just thought, do I take part in running this organization or do I do, I do my own thing? And I just thought, well, where do I get my kicks? Is it from having power and influence and you know, being on board meetings every other day? Or was it from being with my clients? And it, frankly, it was being with my clients and doing the work I do and helping them change and be better at what they do. And so I took the, I took the decision to start my own business. And that was literally 20 years ago. Um, yeah, in 2000. And then that changed from that was phoenix international and then you, and then you phoenix international has changed since in terms of the presentation maestro so what's the main difference between phoenix international and the presentation maestro because i think that leads nicely then into what you do now sure um the main difference is i focus now almost exclusively on anything to do with oral communication 
presenting, pitching. And when I, was, when I started Phoenix, I did various other programs. I did self-management, I did communication, um, things like that. But then I thought, no, the one I get the most fun out of and that I see runs on the board with my clients earlier and faster and quicker is presentation work, which is why I changed it to the presentation master. And the name came about very simply from, uh, um, I did, there's a, he's dead now, but a guy called Jay Conrad Levinson, uh, an extraordinary old American who, who was the founder of and wrote the first book on, um, Guerrilla Marketing. He was the, the granddaddy Guerrilla Marketing. And I went over to Florida to spend a week with him and a few others. And we were talking about names. Uh, and it was his work and his ideas that actually made me change it. And so, yes, I morphed, should we say, into, into purely presentation work. And I call it that not because I think I'm a master at it. What, what I am a master of, I think, is actually helping other people to do it well. Mm. Um, Hence the word, I teach them presentation mastery. Uh, it's not blowing my own trumpet too much. Um, so I, I've, seen you, I've seen you do a 15 minute set, let's say, on, on helping people understand how to present. Yeah. And, and it's actually, it's amazing. It's, there's no surprise to anyone watching this. I don't get nervous doing it, I'm fine doing it. Um, yeah. So before we come to techniques, it's, it's the nerves people get, like, of, of just jumping on camera or presenting, like whether it's talking to, it seems to be there's like a, it seems to be there's like a, an amount of people. Once it goes past four people and it becomes official, people seem to have a problem. It, I, they can talk in front of their family and friends of 10 or 15 people and they could do a toast and that doesn't bother them. But once it's an official work thing or an official delivery of something, and the number of people is more than sort of three or four, so it's not really just a normal meeting. It now might be other departments or other people coming in. It, it, it's, it's scary. I, I, read, I read a statistic somewhere that it's the world's number one fear is public speaking. Yeah, and that's the... That, no, uh, actually, that's no, no, this is, it's, sorry. It's number two. I'm looking at now. Number one is the loss of your child. Number two is public speaking. Three is cancer. So <laughs> let's, let's just laugh at it. So, so yeah, quite rightly, the death of your own child should, it's the thing that I think terrifies all parents. But to be more scared of public speaking than getting cancer is really, it is, it is laughable that that's how much weight people put on it. It is, it is laughable in many ways. But it, and that, that survey changes uh, over the years according to who you read. Um, but it comes originally from America. And in America, it's not exactly the land of the shine retiring. So it does surprise us all to learn that it's number one. Actually, the number one fear in America now, apparently, and maybe this survey was done before you just told, told me about the death of a child, was walking into a room full of strangers. Number two was presenting. Um, but anyway, you cut it. It's not near uh, the top of people's lists of favorite things to do. And, and it, it shouldn't be something to be scared of. Look, we're going to, you're, you're talking about tips and hints, but it yeah, shouldn't yeah. be something to be scared of. I, I've always said, 
if you've been asked to speak, it's because they want to hear you. So don't, <laughs> so don't, don't be scared. Maybe be worried you're not going to be any good and you've done the wrong presentation or your product's not very good. That's a natural worry. But no one ever really speaks to a group of people spontaneously because you've been asked to do so and they want you there so the fear of doing it i've always found very very odd yeah and i can believe you then um people who think a certain way do find it odd but um one maybe way to look at it for those that do suffer from it and i was one of them i mean really um which i suppose is why it's quite useful that i i can teach it now is that I, would you believe one of the reasons I never got married was I was shed scared of walking down the aisle looking at all those faces. And at school, my parents were begging me to join debating societies, go on stage, etc. I didn't. I would not. I was absolutely shit scared of it. Um, so I'd been there, whether it's my number one fear or was my number one fear, I don't know. But I know what it's like to go through the uh, tremors of the damned uh, before standing up. But I think what is behind it is, and this is why when you say going over three or four people gets bit trickier, is it's the fear of failure through ridicule. Mm. Being made to look a schmuck or being made to look less than in front of people who matter or almost anybody. And I think the toughest audiences on the whole are your, your colleagues, not strangers really, it's your colleagues, people who know you well, because they'll, they'll spot any um, thing that's out of line with your character, any sort of grandiosity, they'll spot it. Uh, and your family, your friends and family. They're often the toughest audiences, I think, not strangers. But it's a fear of failure through ridicule. And the ones actually that have no fear at all about it. So yeah, I can get up in front of a group of slides. I've been doing it for 10 years. They're often the dangerous ones in many ways because they think they're good and they can go through the mechanics, but often they can't engage. Um, but they're, a lot, some of them are, lack a certain amount of self-awareness to realize how much they need to change. Um, and I think at times, I think at times, I've been very guilty of that. So I remember one of the very first, I can't remember whether I was working at Zurich or I can't remember where I was. And there yeah. was a presentation to be done and the guy who was meant to be doing it, um, it was in front of like 150 advisors. The guy who was meant to be doing it just was stuck in traffic. Um, yeah. And they went, well, Zurich have got to do their presentation. I'm pretty sure it was Zurich. I can't, could have been, I can't remember. Anyway, I just had to jump up and do it, having never seen the presentation. And I had to deliver a 20-minute presentation. I had literally three minutes with the slides before it, before it went ahead. Mm -hmm. And I think, there you are right, people can be dangerous with it. You've got to make sure you're doing it. I've, I was given one piece of advice ever on, for, for me yeah. by, a, by a speaker training, which was stop trying to be what you think people want you to be and just be yourself so the, 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 the lady said you can present there's no doubt in that you come across as disingenuous because it's like you're trying to be something you're trying to be the bbc ben you're trying to be the news at 10 ben she said you're she said, you're quite humorous 
so just be that when you present and that mm-hmm. that i found made a huge difference but i was lucky i just had the ability to get up and do it so and that confidence and that 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 lack of self-awareness <laughs> <laughs> well if it went well then that's fantastic um yeah and i think uh, that, I, that that's that's like you're going to give all the tips and you've already started my only tip is don't try and be someone you're not don't try and be the bbc maybe 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 drop the f don't drop the f bomb if you're in a meeting with 10 people you've never met before but if it's appropriate to be a little bit a little bit more risque or blue because the audience you think it will go down well and that is your style then don't equally don't don't just not do it because I think people can sanitize, overly sanitize themselves. Oh, God, I quite agree with you. And, I mean, I drop the F-bomb regularly with uh, yeah. people I've never met before. Uh, and it's just part of what I do and who I am. And I agree, agree with you. I th- one of the things I like about this subject and the way I, I do it is that I help the real them come out to play, uh, which often is kept inside for the very reasons that you're talking about you know i'm going to be the bbc then or the whatever and we're all utterly unique and we all have our own style and i think people are far more engaging and an audience connects better with somebody when they're being themselves and but the upbeat enthusiastic part of themselves should we say natural plus a couple of clicks uh because i think if you see someone on stage and they may be one way and then you meet them for coffee afterwards and they're different, you're thinking, well, which is the real one? Yes. You know, who am I engaging with here? There shouldn't be uh, a difference between the two in my map of the world yeah. at all. So helping the real person come out to play and engage with people like that, particularly with humor, if you can do it. Definitely, and it, and it can be hard to inject humour because there's also fear. There's also fear of failure with putting a joke in that won't work. Oh, tell me about it. Um, there's a guy called Harold Evans who used to run the Sunday Times uh, many years ago, but he's been in America for a long time, and he was talking about American universities in this case. But actually, this could apply to any country anywhere, particularly to us right now. But he, I'll give him the exact, give you the exact quote. He said, American universities are a hotbed of unimaginable minorities just waiting to be offended. Now, he wrote that before the advent of Twitter and trolling and everything else, but it's so true. There are so many sensitivities out about there and, um, oh, I'm offended by that, or, oh, you can't say that, or you mustn't. And they're out there just waiting to go, boom, yeah, I think that, that's a slightly different point, but I understand what, the way you're, what you're saying is that, that obviously you can be worried about offending an audience. And, and, we, and we, do, we do have to be very careful of, of I think, of, there's a difference between offending someone and deliberately causing offence. So we have to make sure that we, we, we don't deliberately cause offence because that obviously would be a really insensitive thing to do. And I've, I've been places where... Um, where people have done that. I've been to I've been to sportsmen's dinners where where uh, some where some of them some of the things dropped. And look, I I I, I can put up with, with a lot of stuff listening to things, but 
that some of the stuff they say for effect um it's just it's just unnecessary so i think well, i agree yeah you, um, you've got you've got to be very, you've got to be very responsible you have got to be responsible very much so you wouldn't i think very few of us would go out to deliberately offend people that'd be that'd be ludicrous um but and, and, and I, I, suppose, I suppose it's making sure that yeah this is another thing you might say might, might, might be a point is that people often try to speak on something they know very little about and that can be a really big big problem and i find that i, I went to a presentation i was at a presentation at networking and this person had changed jobs in the very recent time and they were doing one thing literally three months ago and as you say people change careers and they were then speaking on a very as if very informed basis on a, a new subject and and it, it didn't quite sit right with a few people who who did that job that person had now moved into and they were getting things wrong and it's i think speaking from a point of experience is also really really powerful i quite agree I absolutely agree. And to be honest with you, Ben, I, that's fairly rare when people get up uh, and talk about something they know very little about, unless it may be an aspect of their hobbies or interests at a networking event. In, in the commercial arena, people aren't often going to be standing up talking about what they don't know about. I, do, I think that's less of an issue, to be honest with you. But dealing with the sort of looping back a bit to talk about this upsetting people, I, I think we have become, and maybe it's a sign of my generation, and which I can't do anything about, but I'm fairly open and broad-minded um, and, and got very esoteric interests as well. But I think the way this current wave is going, of oversensitivity to things, you know, when you almost you would never leave your front door sometimes. And I was reminded of a... Um, a guy called John Mortimer, he wrote Rumpel of the Bailey, which some people remember from this. It's a brilliant television series and the books as well. And he was a, a socialist lawyer, real thorn in Maggie Thatcher's side, uh, brilliant guy. But he said, I don't agree with Osvith. I think one should be offended three times a week and twice on Sundays. It's, it's good for the soul. And you could say uh, that the only society worth living in is one when you are regularly offended to the core of your beliefs. Not being going out to deliberately provoke in, in an aggressive, negative, nasty way, not at all. But I think to watch oneself treading on eggshells all the time is not useful for anybody. And people talk about it, well, I'm not very comfortable with that, or not easier. Well, quite even Douglas Murray here, well, what's, what's comfortable? Life isn't comfortable. You know, a, a, a warm sofa is comfortable, but life is full of bumps and ups and downs. And to have people leaping all over you because of a view you've expressed that isn't exactly in line with theirs, which is a, I suppose the modern word for now is cancel culture. If I don't like, if you're not completely in line with my way of thinking, psh, let's destroy you, which is happening. Yeah, look, uh, it, it certainly is happening. I think, I think obviously for, most people watching this that's going to be the least of their concerns at the moment i think they're they're more worried about being able to get up and and they're probably speaking to a friendly audience with on a topic that people want to share and discuss so you know, i i from what you're saying i understand that is definitely something that other people will need to consider and 
it, but I think the majority of people, as you know, that we meet networking or in business yeah. or that you've met, their major concern is what are Bob and Jenny going to think about the way I deliver this? Oh my God, I, I, I started working with Bob three years ago. How am I going to get up and speak in front of Bob? So if we break this down into sort of two areas, I've got, I've got, I've got three things written down here. Where are we at? Let's have a look. So people's concerns, we've kind of addressed those, but what I would love to understand is a couple of common problems that you come across. So things that you think are very common and a couple of really easy sort of fixes. Look, what, what you offer through the presentation, Maestro, we can talk about how people can get in contact with you later in your app and, and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a resource that people really should look at to improve their ability to speak or at least increase their confidence. Um, let's give the viewers a little bit of helpful content so what are let's say the three most common problems you come across and what are the three the three sort of quick fixes three most common problems one of which is uh this is top of my head because i have i'm not actually thinking of three common problems but now you mention it people don't pause enough both online and offline they don't zip it for long enough. And pausing is really a bit like punctuation, which is why we like reading things that have got space on the page and punctuation in it. And, but the reason most people don't pause enough, particularly when they're nervous, is that the adrenaline whizzing around the system distorts one's sense of timing. And what in reality is about half a second often feels like about 10 seconds inside uh, so people don't pause enough. And when you don't pause enough, it, it turns the audience off a little bit and it certainly gets in the way of you delivering your message. It's because we can only take in uh, a very small amount at any one time. I think it's seven plus or minus two bits of information. And we need time to digest it. Mm. And if one just rams information at people, however engagingly you do it, it just becomes overload. And that really pisses people off. So pausing and pausing long enough and often enough is one of the biggest things. And it shows, even though you be, may be feeling like death inside, it shows confidence if you can pause quite a bit. Second, common mistake, very common mistake, is that most talks don't have much of a structure, but in particular, they don't have a purpose. They don't have a message. They have a subject matter, and it might be very interesting and entertaining, but they often don't have a message. And the people delivering it don't think about what they want their audience to do or think or feel differently as a result of it. Yeah. That's a really common uh, mistake, and we nail that every time. And I wouldn't say it's the most common mistake, but in the talk itself, an awful lot of people lose their audience because their audience or their viewers don't know where they are in the talk. Because the, <coughs> forgive me, the speaker has not, for want of a better expression, signposted in the talk or where they are. Okay, that was this bit. Now let's go on to t'other. 
they often do little subtle segues. So moving on, or even not even that, they just go straight on to the next part of it and without even a gear change. And that can confuse people. So those, I think, were some of the, the bigger ones. I think what I'd like to do with those is really sort of dissect them a little bit, just because I think it's so, so important. So the pausing, I, if you, I, I would much rather read um, something spread over two pages with some headings and some spacing than something just crammed onto one page. Yeah. And what you're saying is our ears are exactly the same. Absolutely, it is. Absolutely. I mean, if I can use a rather strange analogy, if you are, well, let's come back a little. None of us, very few of us, listen 100% of the time to anybody. We just don't. Um, we get distracted. Well, I'm cooking dinner tonight. Have I got enough paprika? Come back in again. Oh, geez, who's picking those kids up from school this afternoon? Um, come back in again. We do that. We go out and in and out and in. And so when you come back into the talk, it's useful where there's a pause and you go, oh, it gets your attention. Um, but you're absolutely, it's, the analogy I was going to use was a bit like, without pauses, it's a bit like feeding somebody muesli. Now, you know what muesli is like, Ben. It's like dried cattle food. And it takes about 30,000 shoes before it goes down your neck. And it needs a fair amount of milk on it, does it not? To lubricate it enough to chew it and get it down your neck. And a talk without pauses is rather like a great Valley Great Bell and Muesli, but with only two tablespoons full of milk on it, and you're given a time limit saying, come on. And that's what you're doing to people's brains. It's like crowding them full of dry muesli if you don't pause enough and we need that space to go okay yeah next and I loved your analogy of the two bits of paper that's why uh, let's say I don't know if you have read a, a copy of the week magazine mm. uh, it's beautifully laid out it's got different fonts different colors lots of pictures lots of space it's in, it invites you to read it well whereas if you look at a page in the economist for example it's a lot heavier yeah. um, and the worthiness of it may attract you. You know that it's very well written, but it's a bit of an effort. And that's a good analogy. And people are, I know I am. I, I don't, I used to, I used to take The Economist and now my brain just doesn't want to wade through an article. I'd much rather read The Week or, yeah. um, a new, a new thing I was reading the other week, I just tried it, what was it called? Um, the Critic. Um, just, try, just trying a few different news sources, a few different things. And, mm -hmm. um, and that, that's laid out quite nicely. I, I, I noticed that some of the online, I, I looked at the Observer online the other day, and that's, that's late. That's almost, I think it, it looks like they've changed completely how their layout works. And it, it does seem to be, a, that, that, that seems to be a newer way of doing it. And it's, people are able to understand that. So, the eyes are working then it's essentially it's the brain who works isn't it because the eyes are seeing the words the, the ears are hearing them yeah and it's the brain that doesn't want it to be 
all shoved into one space, our concentrations change, our ability to digest information change. So, yeah, that's 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 really important. Well, our ability, frankly, I think our ability is the same. It's just not getting tested as much. It's not getting exercised because it's all being spooned up in little chunks. But um, another reason, I think, why we're moving on from pauses a little now, which are absolutely vital. But so much business communication, particularly both verbal and written, I think, is largely devoid of any sensory specific language. As if there's very few feeling, touching, smelling, tasting, seeing, emoting words in most business communication. So it's particularly legal stuff, which I think you deal with quite a bit. I mean, it's as dry as dust. Right. And, and half the time in the legal profession, that's deliberate. So laymen can't, and women can't understand it. Um, and we're human beings before we're human doings. And I think we crave to be communicated with in a way that we can understand and that is human. And we use our five senses all the time. And we, we, we use the language that goes for the senses when talking to our children and our friends. But when we get into, in, into work, so much of the time, people put on this hat with the word professional written across the top of it, which means they talk a language which is non-sensory specific, it's, it's anodyne, it's dry. Oh, and I think that's, that's also sector jargon. That's also due to the fact that most people don't understand this difference between feature, need and benefit. And people talk about feature, feature, feature all the time. And the legal profession is awful for it. Mm -hmm. Feature, feature, feature. I've met some really great solicitors who are much better expressing the benefit. I work with a couple of really good solicitors who work with um, sort of commercial work. They sort of they do um, cross-option agreement, all the sort of stuff businesses might need to do. Um, no, sorry, Ben, can I pick you up on that? I'm going to disagree with you here. Uh, I'm not completely disagree that they ought to feature, feature, feature. That may be a fact of, um, that's true. However, or should I say, and, you can be talking about the benefits or the features or whatever. Still, the language is the same. It's dry. Well, I think if you if you think with a benefit mind, you understand that people here benefit. Benefits are touchy. They are feely. They how benefits are how they make you feel. What they produce in the long run for the family. Um, so in my industry, so when we take wills. Yes. When we talk about the benefits, I'm going to talk about. If you pass away today, what happens to your children? Do they go to the state? Well, if you haven't got a will, they become a ward of the state. They might get to live with one of your family members while it's all being sorted out, but the state are going to have to assess that. It's, if in, it, people don't people don't understand that. So rather than just talk about the rather than talk about the, the, the will act and social services, which is dry, as you say, muesli chaff. I, I always try to talk about benefit and I, you're right, people can talk benefits in a boring language, but I think if you start to think about benefits to the end user and always try and talk in their terms, I think you're starting to win a little bit more. And I think the legal industry and the financial service industry have got a long way to go on it. There are some great people and I work with some fantastic people, yep. but there are an awful lot of very dry, very boring, talks i've seen and 
as I hinted earlier, I've been lucky enough to work across, I would say, yeah, I'd say most sectors actually. And the same thing applies. The same thing applies. I hate my hay fever's playing me up this morning, Mike. I'm so sorry. Bear with me. Sorry. Oh, you put it up. Oh, my hay fever is absolutely. Oh, right. Go on. Let's start again. I, I've realised that the last thirty seconds, people have just seen me doing this. Oh God. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's start again. Go for it. You've seen enough. Some, I will send you some distance Reiki after this call. Thank you. Uh, which I could do. Um, yeah, it's across pretty well every sector. Uh, this tendency. It's almost a virus, actually, if that's not too uh, tasteless an analogy to use, given what we're going through now. But this virus of using professional speak and what people think is professional speak, uh, as well as jargon, just makes it so heavy to listen to. And mm. almost just, as I said, it's not human. We don't use this sort of language in talking to people that we're, we're close to or mm. that matter to us. Uh, we, we put on the professional hat and it's, yes, it's definitely the legal profession. I agree with what you said about bringing benefits alive and meaningful to people by using sense-specific language. But I would say, why just keep it to the benefits? Use it throughout. Yeah. Well, I suppose the reason I said that is because I think people talk about features way too much. I think people don't talk about benefits anywhere near enough. I think that's one of the big yeah, problems. That, 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 that I would agree. And that gives you, you can even 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 go to curries and they talk about the features of the TV and like I, I don't know what it means. You've got 4K this, this refresh rate, this, that, and the other. What does that mean? Tell me what the benefit to me is. I don't care yeah. about the 45 bullet points, what that TV does. Frankly, I'm too thick to give a shit or understand what they that means. Tell me what it Tell me the benefit to me, my family, my daughter, and my wife. That's what I want to know. I think everyone could learn an awful lot from that. Talk more about benefits than features. That's, that's a slight aside from what we're talking about, but I think they could really learn a lot from that. Um, let's go back to, um, well, I know we're very tight on time. Let's go back to and finish with, before we do a recap, of structure and purpose. Because I've seen you do a presentation divided into three bits. You also do something I love, which is the people I haven't met yet. So if you just do that little thing there, I think that's really good. That thing I've heard you do before. Oh, um, if I understand your question correctly, um, that's all in the introduction, which is about the yeah. first 90 seconds of a talk. And I think that's pretty well the most important part of the talk. Yeah, I completely that's agree. Where that's where you build rapport with others. It settles the audience, it settles the speaker, it settles everyone. That 90 seconds of structure and that, yeah. that line you use about to the people I've not met yet. If you want to just go through that, that, that 90 seconds, I think that would be invaluable for people. Okay. Um, well, let's do that. Um, I'm doing that diagram. So I think one of the best ways to, uh, to start a talk, which that's another issue that people often have, you know, how do I start? What do I... Yes, you can start with your name, um, but frankly, everybody does that. And if, if you're really honest, who gives a shit anyway? Because it's not you they've come to listen to most of the time. It's what you've come to say and to share with them they've come to listen to. So I think what you've come to say gets higher billing than who you are in my map of the world. And rather than go straight into the subject, I think it's quite nice to seduce them into it. Um, and I call that technique the funnel. And 
I don't know, let's say I'm, I'm looking at the screen here, I can see a picture in the background. Let, let's use that. Let's say modern art was the subject. Um, and you could start by saying something like, um, since time immemorial, you know, man has wanted to represent his environment in some fashion or other. And this, we've seen pictures of uh, stone uh, paintings in, uh, in caves that go back thousands and thousands of years, and some of them are bloody good. And some people do it conventionally. Some people always kept ahead of the game. And that brings to what I want to talk to you about today, is how man actually recreates what he sees in his head on canvas or on a wall or somewhere, but actually can confuse us quite a bit. It's known as modern art. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So that was a rather clumsy funnel into the subject of modern art. Right. I, I, it, it, make, it makes sense. You're, 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 you're bringing things in, people thinking, where's he going? It's starting, it's got the attention, and then you bring them into the subject. I like it. And that's, then after that, after having a pause, then you can say who you are. And the phrase that you've mentioned is, is that I think is most useful is for those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Michael Trigg. Uh, I've been studying modern art now for the last 20 years, and I have quite a few in my collection. Just a little bit of who you are and why you're worth listening to. And that phrase, for those of you I haven't met yet, there's a linguistic presupposition in that, which presupposes that you're gonna make the effort to meet them. It implies those who know you, um, already won't mind you saying that. And those who don't know you at all, you haven't met before, will appreciate the fact that you've acknowledged them and you've hinted that you're going to make the effort to meet them. That is, um, using that is online is just as good as using it face-to-face, -face, but if you're doing one-to-one -one online, like we are today, you wouldn't say that for those of you who haven't met yet. Of course, you know, you'd soften it. You say, well, since we haven't met before, Ben, uh, I just thought I'd blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's where you introduce yourself, I think, once you set the subject up. Then you come to, is this, sorry, Ben, can I just stop? Is this what you want me to do? No, no, it's uh, perfect. This is great. This is exactly it, yeah. Then the next important part of the introduction is the message, the aim. The purpose and it's the and it's missing in 98 percent of talks this is where you express as clearly as possible what you want your audience to do or feel or think differently and in my off the cuff uh, example of modern art it could be and the aim of this talk this afternoon about modern art is to maybe raise your awareness of some of the things that are hidden behind it and some of the things to look for. So the next time you go to a gallery, rather than go there, you'll actually want to explore it a little better and see it through different eyes. Mm. So I want to give you this so that you can do that. And in commercial terms, if you're pitching to somebody, you say, look, what I'd like to do for the next 20 minutes is give you a flavor for the sort of things we do, the sort of clients we have, so that you can see if there'd be a fit between what we do and what you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. It's and like think, offering, it's making it clear. I think it's, it's what you've done there, and that's what I want to have, is it, it, I think that starting is so hard. People have got no idea where to go with it. I think when it gets into talking about their, 
business and their products and their specialty, they, they, then that's quite easy for some people because they've got yeah. the ability yeah. to understand it. But it's 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 the other bits that are hard. Michael, I'm very aware that I've taken up a lot of your time and I've that's also cool. got a meeting very soon. What I want to do is I'm just going to go over what we've got and then we can say how people can get in contact with you. Because I think I know at least seven or eight people who've been through your presentation course and they yeah. all say how amazing it is and that they've got the ability now to present far better than they ever did before. So I think that's something we want to get people to, to at least know how to find out more. So look, the things are written down from our call, from our conversation date. Be the real you, avoid the two personalities. As you say, when you see someone on stage and they're either gregarious or quiet and then you meet them for a coffee afterwards and they're the opposite, you, you kind of lack a little bit of trust. Who are yeah. we really speaking to? Um, That's true. Pausing. Um, we would rather read something over two pages than crammed into one. So as you say, breaking it up into bullet points, making sure that people have got the ability to understand the conversation, understand the digest it, let it sink in, then move on to the next bit. Read, as you say, be human in your language. So important, so important. And then mm -hmm. the structure piece, is there a purpose? So um, don't start with your name, start with the funnel of funneling you into the subject, how you're getting them there, then tell them your name, and then give them the message and aim of the purpose of the talk. Of the talk. And what you're gonna cover, the agenda. What you're gonna cover, yeah. That feels yeah. to me like a real good synopsis of what we touched on this morning. Um, well done, yes. We, we could do five hours on this, um, whether people would watch it, I don't know. Um, but we could do five hours. How do people find out more about you, Michael? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, like everybody else. Um, just Google Michael Trigg. Google me, quite seriously, uh, Michael Trigg or Presentation Maestro. And my site, carrying on a theme here, is www.presentationmaestro.com. And there will be a link on that site to uh, my masterclass, my online masterclass, one day intensive, uh, which I run pretty regularly. Michael, thank you so much for this morning. Um, anyone has any questions, please don't hesitate to get in contact with Michael. As I, can, as I say, I know a lot of people who've worked with him and they speak very highly of, 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 of the, the results they've got, the benefits they've got from the features that Michael provides. <laughs> so, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you for today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. My name's Ben Mason. This has been the Kingcast, and thank you, Michael Trigg, and take care. Thank you very much indeed. Take care.